John Wayne Gacy was pronounced dead at uh, 1258 uh, AM. He got a much easier death than any of his victims. In my opinion, he got an easier death than he deserved. But the important thing is that he paid for his crimes with his life. This case is about notorious serial killer John Wayne Gacy. New information, DNA solving cold cases, and Gacy's sister who still doesn't believe he acted alone. How do I know? She told me. Was John guilty? I believe so, and he paid for his crimes. I also still believe there were others involved. She wrote me a series of emails, and I'm going to share them with you. I will give you my email for the questions, if that is what you really want, is the truth. Before we dive into the case, I want to remind you that this is for mature audiences. I also want to thank investigators for following the podcast on social media, Twitter, Insta, and sharing episodes. It's a way for you to be a part of the investigation, and reviews also really help independent podcasts like this one. So after each episode, I have a shout out for an investigator who writes a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. But first, those emails from the sister of John Wayne Gacy. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely... Random Thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for this episode. Serial, sister of John Wayne Gacy, killer clown, speaks out. That's right, the sister of John Wayne Gacy, one of the most notorious serial killers in American history, emailed me. None of us knew where John got the evil that definitely showed itself later in his life. Even when my dad hit him, John would not strike him back. After his arrest, I tried to make sense of it. She has mind-blowing allegations that her brother didn't act alone when he lured and murdered dozens of young men and boys in the 1970s and then buried them under his house in the crawl space. This episode is one that I've wanted to talk to you about for quite some time. Not only is it so rare that you hear from a family member of a serial killer, but because all the victims have not yet been identified, which means you can help. More on that at the end of the episode. This story starts in Chicago, Illinois, where on March 17, 1942, the evil John Wayne Gacy was born. By all appearances, he had a normal life. His dad, a World War I veteran, his mom, a stay-at-home mom. He had two sisters, including Karen Kuzma, who wrote me those emails. She will talk about the abuse in the Gacy family, in the household, and how he was molested by a family friend. Early on, John was interested in politics. In the 1960s, Gacy would volunteer with the local Democratic Party. At one point, he was even pictured with First Lady Rosalind Carter six years after he allegedly murdered his first victim. In the 1960s, John Gacy met and married a co-worker, Marilyn Myers. The two moved to Waterloo, Iowa to run three Kentucky Fried Chicken fast food restaurants. They were owned by her father. They had two children together, a son and a daughter, 
and they appeared to have the all-American dream. But things started to get creepy. He would invite teenage workers to come over to the house and offer them drugs and alcohol. He would make advances at some of the teen boy employees and was arrested and convicted for raping the son of a fellow JC Club member. In prison, his wife divorced him. He became a model inmate and was released after only serving 18 months of a 10-year sentence. He moved back to Chicago and moved back in with his mother. In 1971, he was arrested twice for sexually assaulting teen boys he lured from the Greyhound bus stop. Those charges were later dropped. When one of the accusers was a no-show in court, and the other allegedly blackmailed Gacy, and prosecutors knew about it. Once free from probation, he borrowed money from his mom yet again and bought what would become his murder house in Norwood Park Township in the metro Chicago area. There at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue, he would live until his arrest in 1978. And the FBI believes that is the address he committed all or most of his murders. In the early 1970s, Gacy started a contracting business where he would again employ teenage boys. Around this time, he was heavy into politics, throwing fundraisers at his house, and he started to volunteer at a children's hospital as a clown, Pogo the Clown. You've seen pictures of Pogo with those big blue triangles over his eyes and that creepy red smile. If not, I'll post pictures on my website, truecrimedeadline.com. In January of 1972, police believe Gacy committed his first murder. He drove to a Greyhound station near his house and lured 16-year-old Timothy McCoy to his car. Gacy would sometimes flash a badge or promise money or booze to his victims. In this case, he offered Timothy a sightseeing tour of Chicago and a place to stay. See, Timothy had just returned from visiting his father over Christmas break in Michigan and had several hours until his next bus would depart. So he believed Gacy was okay, and he went home with him. Gacy would later tell police that it was McCoy who woke him up in the middle of the night wielding a kitchen knife. The two struggled, and Gacy stabbed him repeatedly to death. After the murder, he walked into the kitchen and saw McCoy had been cooking breakfast. That's why he had the knife. Eggs, bacon were out. The table was set for two. Gacy buried McCoy's body in the crawl space of his home, and he covered it with lime and concrete to mask the smell. According to reports, Gacy called the murder the ultimate thrill, saying that he listened to McCoy gasp for air and die, and it gave him a mind-numbing orgasm. What a sicko. He would rape and torture his victims, preying on young men and gay teens. He lured them with the promise of jobs, money, and sex. He would offer them drugs at his house and then show him a handcuff trick. Once they were bound in those handcuffs, he would torture them to death. And he called his victims less than human when he confessed. After a tip to police and police surveillance, Gacy was finally arrested in December of 1978. Police noticed a foul odor of death in his house when they searched it. They discovered the bodies were decomposing in the crawl space underneath. The next day, he confessed. Gacy was convicted of killing 33 young men and teens through the 1970s. 
The remains of 26 victims were found in the crawl space of his murder house. Three others were found on the property, and four more were found in the Chicago waterways. Gacy would later say that there were more victims, as many as 45, including a fifth which was never recovered from the waterways, according to Gacy. After his arrest, he blamed his employees on the murders, and a man he said ran a sex trafficking ring in Chicago. In 1980, he was sentenced to death. In 94, he was executed by lethal injection. His last words? Not sorry, not where the other bodies are buried, not their information. He said, kiss my ass. As I was researching this case, I found an old interview Gacy's sister Karen Kuzma gave to Oprah Winfrey. Here's a clip from that interview. Leaving the prison and looking back, knowing I'd never see him again was really, really hard. The whole situation was a nightmare. You could hear a lot of the chanting of people that had already gathered at the prison. I happened to see one of the interviews taking place and I saw it on the news that night and it was one of the prosecutors saying that it was the greatest day in the world and it was really one of the worst days in the world for me. After John's execution, there was no one that ever called me to say, I'm sorry for your loss. Did you spend the last day uh, before he was executed with John Wayne Gacy? I did. And... Um, what is that like? Or what was that like? You know, it was like he was at peace about it. Uh, I had said to him, you know, I said, you'll never walk out of prison. Never. And he said, if I have to live in prison for the rest of my life, I'd rather be dead. So when was this picture taken? This was hours before he was transferred. To be executed? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people uh, would probably think looking at that photo that, you know, how could you be hugging him or whatever, but he was my brother. You know, I didn't ever know the evil part of him. Do you think differently about him now? I don't like that part of him. I hate that part of him. And I had always said to my husband and my family that if any appeal ever worked, I'd see to it that he never walked the face of the earth again. Yeah. Did you ever talk to any of the victims' families? No. The attorneys wouldn't allow us to. They said that it's like admitting that, um, that he is guilty. Is that one of the things you regret? Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. I understand you just told your boss last week that who your brother was. I did. See, the name Gacy has been buried. My sister has passed away a few years ago. Her husband wouldn't even use her maiden name on her death certificate. I've never given my maiden name out. The people, my neighbors are now, if they watch Oprah, are gonna find out who I really am. Mm. After 31 years of living in a closet, not being able to talk about John or anybody, and there was a couple of times I haven't even told anybody I had a brother. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want that part of my life known. I wanted my children to have a normal life, uh, my grandchildren to have a normal life, mm -hmm. and you can't have that. What's the last thing your brother said to you or you said to him? I told him I loved him, and I told him that I forgave him for the stuff that he, not, not the crime, I could never forget the crime, but for what we were put through. So in true investigative journalist fashion, I dug around on the interwebs, and I found her. That's after I saw the clip for the first time. 
For years, we exchanged messages back and forth. At first, it was on Facebook. Yes, she's on Facebook. And then it was email. I have promised my children I would not do any more interviews. While I have been healed mostly, my children still live with the stigma of being related to John through me. It keeps the weirdos away from them and their children. After much persistence, she wrote me back again. I will give you my email for the questions. If that is what you really want, is the truth. In May of 2019, I sent a list of about two dozen questions. I wasn't sure what to expect back. But for the purpose of this podcast, my friend, one of my best friends and fellow journalist, Lindsay Sievert, she's going to read Karen's answers. Matt, when you said you had a few questions, you sent me enough to do an interview. Sorry, but I suggest you go back and watch a few of the interviews I've already done, especially the last one that aired in 2019 on ID Series 5. It already covers most, if not all, these questions. So I ask, what's the real story? You said that you wanted to set the record straight in your email. Here's your chance. The only thing I have tried to get clear is they portrayed my father as this evil man who was perverted and was evil. My dad was a blue-collar worker who married late in life and had a drinking problem. His own dad died when he was 10, and his strict German mother raised him along with his three sisters and three brothers. He served in the First World War at age 17. I wanted to know, what was John like growing up as a child? Did she see any signs? John was not a bad child, but he was totally different than Dad, and it created huge arguments and clashing between them, especially when Dad drank. John was molested at age eight by a builder who had a house under construction next to ours. My dad befriended this man, or vice versa, and he was the guy that later was the person who molested my brother. I don't think my dad ever got over that, and it put a huge barrier between them. John didn't like anything my dad liked. My dad worked on his own car, fished a lot, loved sports. John was more into gardening and baking, just not what dad called manly stuff. What do you remember about your brother's arrest? And what was your reaction to all those charges? None of us knew where John got the evil that definitely showed itself later in his life. Even when my dad hit him, John would not strike him back. After his arrest, I tried to make sense of it and even had an autopsy done on his brain for abnormalities. The person that was supposed to have the University of Illinois research, I never heard back from her. Her name is Helen Morrison, and I later found out she had his brain in a jar, taking it in on interviews and making money. What do you remember about the day your brother was executed? Were you in touch with his family attorneys then? There was nothing I could do as I had no paperwork, just an agreement through an attorney the day my brother was executed. I spent the day with him until 5 p.m., when that was the time the warden said was allowed. I understand that they took your brother's brain for research. I tried on numerous occasions to contact Helen Morrison, but she would not return my calls. She had no right to keep his brain as I donated it for research purposes. I did not have the money to sue her or take legal action. This bothers me till today. What happened after his death? His first attorney sold items that should have been returned to our family. Prosecutor William Kunkel took his clown suit and wore it on Halloween after his execution. All attorneys, prosecutors, and Sam Amarante had a party with the jurors one year later. Who does this stuff? I never heard of any murder case where this has ever happened. You have said publicly, you do not believe your brother acted alone. Explain. Was John guilty? 
I believe so, and he paid for his crimes. I still also believe there were others involved. In December 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, Karen resent her answers to me. She didn't include anything more, she didn't explain why, but clearly she wanted me to start sharing her story. In May of 2022, I emailed her again, and she wrote back. How much are you paying for a voice interview to answer questions? I sent her a list of questions again, hoping that she would answer at least a few, like, what is the lasting impact on the family and the Gacy name? What did Oprah tell you off camera? That stuff interests me. Why did you want to see your brother in prison? And have you ever spoken to the known victim's families? Sorry, Matt, but my book is going to the publisher after some updates, and many of these questions are answered in my book. She never did answer all of my questions. I guess I'm going to have to buy the book. But remember, she stopped doing interviews, right? I guess she didn't stop doing book interviews or or writing a book. I have promised my children I would not do any more interviews. Gacy claims he killed up to 45 men. When later asked about the other victims, he told police, that's for you to figure out. In 2011, police exhumed the remains of some unidentified but known victims of Gacy, and people submitted their DNA. Three victims have been identified. Because of DNA testing, 11 additional cold cases in the area, not associated with him, that sicko, have been solved. Five of Gacy's known victims remain still unidentified. Four were buried under the crawl space of his murder house and a fifth near the barbecue pit in the backyard. They were all teens and young men between the ages of 14 and 24. They would have gone missing between 1970 and 79. If you would like to submit your DNA, I'll have a link to the Cook County Sheriff's page on my website, truecrimedeadline.com. Thank you for that, and thank you for listening. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. This season dedicated to my best friend, my French bulldog, my crime-fighting canine, Mr. Gatsby, who is now in doggy heaven. From both of us, please hug your pet tonight. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Again, writing reviews really help independent podcasts like this one get noticed, so thank you. It's easy. It's free. Hit five-star, please. Subscribe, tell a friend, write a review, and include your real name and your podcast name if you're a podcaster. I want to get it right. This one comes from Nana DX3, and it says, Interesting and compassionate. I really like listening to the podcast. As a fellow animal lover, it's very sad to hear that you lost your beloved French bulldog. Matt, please keep up the good work. That's Thank you. That's heartwarming. Thank you. The next one says, Matt brings cases to life. Matt has a fantastic delivery and checks all the boxes when it comes to true crime. Mr. Mystery himself, indeed. 
He is charming like a good buddy. That's why folks open up to him. Great independent podcast. Thank you. And that came from J-Boy. Investigators, until next time. <laughs>